0: I'm reminded of something my friend Parker Palmer says. He says, violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. And whether it's the angry surgeon or the depressed and suicidal resident, they're both expressions of violence. And the resilience that's necessary in the healthcare system seems to be the capacity to deal with suffering. Welcome
1: to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I have a client who seemingly had it all. In just a few years, he had built a nine-figure business, a team of brilliant, hardworking, values-driven leaders. And he was making more money than he ever thought he would make. From the outside, it seemed to all be going perfectly. And yet he consistently found himself out of energy, apathetic, checked out. And the gap between how he should feel and how he felt made it even worse. It's an issue that we often see at Reboot. It's an issue that I've certainly wrestled with myself. And it's an issue that even more folks are dealing with in the midst of a pandemic, burnout. My client, like so many, he tried to address the burnout with some of the strategies we've all heard. He took a big break and went on vacation, scaled back his responsibilities, he tried exercising more. He tried meditating more. And while some things helped for moments, nothing really seemed to stick. Burnout can indeed be a function of just simply working too hard for too long, or working hard in extremely challenging conditions. But that's not usually where I see people burning out. A far more common reason for burnout is when I see people working too long, too hard, outside the core of themselves. The farther you are from the core, the more burned out you feel. Now, being away from your core might mean you're asked to work in a way that is out of alignment with your core values. It might mean you're constantly engaging in work that just takes energy and never gives it. It might mean that you're being asked to be someone you are not. But the thing that they all have in common is that you are ignoring the voice that is within, the voice that says, this is who I am. This is what I care about. This is what I need. My client ultimately realized that despite his success, both professionally and financially, He was being asked to lead in a way that just didn't align with his core values. So every morning and every evening, he had to look at himself in the mirror and see a man who was acting and doing as someone else. So he resigned. And since he resigned, I've never seen someone more alive, more energized, more themselves than he is today. No vacation or shift in work responsibilities can bring that energy back. No exercise or meditation routine will restore you from burnout. You have to go within. You have to go to the core. The more fully you are yourself, the more fully you are connected with your values, your purpose, the more energy you will have, the more alive you will feel. For cardiac surgeon, Dr. Simon Maltese, long hours in a demanding work environment were to be expected, but slowly over time, he still found himself just burning out. When he looked in the mirror, the outer Simon was becoming unrecognizable to the inner Simon. In this conversation, he shares how his quest for perfection, his desire to be sparkle and loved, led him further away from his core down a destructive path fueled by anger, alcohol, and self-criticism. Jerry and Simon also discuss the high rates of depression and burnout among healthcare professionals and the resilience they need to deal with the suffering that surrounds them. In sharing honestly about his experience, Simon hopes that his colleagues in healthcare, as well as those who are just in high intensity environments, will feel less alone and feel inspired to find their way to their core. Enjoy.
2: Being a leader in 2022 is harder than ever. It can be lonely with long hours and constant demands. Your to-do list may feel never ending and unforgiving with no manual to help you see a clear path through. If you're looking for an opportunity to reboot and refresh your leadership, join Team Reboot and 14 other smart and courageous entrepreneurs at our 2022 Leadership Bootcamp, this April in Boulder, Colorado. Our boot camps are a mix of pragmatic wisdom from Reboot, engaging reflective exercises, peer support, shared meals, and lots of honest conversation. You'll leave with a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits, as well as a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To learn more about the 2022 Leadership Bootcamp, Head to reboot.io/leadershipcamp.
0: Morning, Simon. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you take a moment and just introduce yourself to the audience?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm Simon Malte. I'm a um, cardiac surgeon. I currently work in the United States. I'm uh, originally from uh, French Canadian from, uh, mm. from Montreal. And uh, um, Quebecois, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been, been in practice for about 12 years now, 13 years, um, in various sort of institutions in the United States and still practice now. Mm.
0: When you all reached out about coming on the show, I was really intrigued about the possibility because, in addition to being a surgeon you spend a lot of time, and I know you have a book, we'll talk about the book a bit later, but um, you spend a lot of time thinking about this notion of burnout in the healthcare field. Yeah. A- am I characterizing that correctly?
3: I would say burnout, yes. I think a sense of um, of inadequacy or being tired in the system is probably more the reflection. Um, mm-hmm. I think there was some element of burnout, but it's sort of there's There was this essence of like something's not right, right? I'm supposed to be super happy. I'm supposed to be this incredible job, and uh, and I'm not, (laughs) you know. So, you know, it's
0: it's interesting. The your comment brought to mind something that a client, a longtime client of mine, once said to me, long time ago. He said, uh, "I did everything right. I went to the right schools." I went to the right graduate school, you know, I got the right grades. Why do I feel so miserable? Yeah, Does that that's,
3: resonate? That's pretty much the essence of of, of what brought me to, uh, to think about this over the past, you know, two years, yeah. So tell us a story.
0: Tell us a little bit about your story.
3: Yeah, I mean, my story was a pretty, uh, I guess I'd say, without failure one, you know, I, mm. I was a pretty smart guy. I'm still, I think <laughs> but, <laughs> we'll, we'll check with your wife on that one. <laughs> uh, she won't. Yeah. And then, um, in my school was easy. Um, I was always, uh, the best at sports, nicest girlfriend. And then I, I, I got through medical school. I got to the best specialty I could ever do. I went and built. a, Really famous heart transplant program. Um, I went worked to the famous Mayo Clinic. And being from Quebec, I thought it was sort of an accomplishment. But yet, you know, over over time, there was an accumulation of, of uh, well, it is over the last five or six years of failures, mini failures, and then bigger mm-hmm. failures, both professionally and, and uh, personally. And it started kind of a subtle way. And you know, having the sort of the bad reports or a couple of, of bad uh, evaluations, or maybe even just a patient uh, um, satisfaction survey that wasn't quite right, and then it became a bit bigger, where you know, financially it wasn't that great, um, starting to be a favorite at HR. You know,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of like being called into the principal's office,
3: right? Um, Yeah, and so in a professional way, right? To say, well, Mm -hmm. you know, you're a bit angry there, and um, you're a bit sort of uh, uh, hard with people, and and you don't need to be like that. And and then and then it sort of translated into personal things as well, like uh, family issues, friends issues, um, and then finally, you know, divorce and things. And so, and then all of this in in the name of of trying to keep everything perfect, right? Because it always was perfect was a very strong word for me. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I just, uh, I just, I mean, it got better a little bit, you know, you sort of try to get things better. And then it sort of kept coming down to, to bottoms that were uh, that were bigger each time. And then finally really hit heart rock bottom, you know, where, where I had to do something where, I mean, I was forced to do something. Not by others, by me, you know, it was either, um, you know, uh, get better, make really sort of profound changes, or just or just lose everything, and that's where I started to, you know, to really make an effort to to deal with those failures in a profound way, and it and started to talk about it, and that's not an easy thing to do for a heart surgeon that always been very successful,
0: right, or a high achiever who. Uh got a lot of pride and self-affirmation out of good grades and good school and building a great program at, you know, a clinic and all. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And then, and then realizing at some point that, uh, well, first others are going through similar stuff that you're not alone. And then that, uh, perhaps for me, the, the way I was living my life was not the way that I, that was fitting my best sort of happiness in, mm-hmm. in some ways, or the the things I wanted to to do with my professional career were at odds with my values, with my with my health at times, and so um, and it takes a profound intent to change that, uh, and a certain dose of humility <laughs> um, to uh, to start making those changes, and I and it's still it's still a daily you know a daily struggle, but feel like I'm in a better, in a better moment.
0: Yeah. The, the folks who listen to this show know a lot about uh, my own story and I'll, but I'll, I'll say this, I, I feel a kinship to the story that you tell because while uh, you know, my career path was through finance and not medicine. Uh, I was 38 when I was at that rink. I mean, I had unexplained neurological problems. I had migraines. I was vastly overweight. Um, I was a wreck, honestly. And the way I often described it is that the inner me did not match the outer me. Right. right? The outer me, interestingly, I, I wasn't in trouble with HR. I was too too good a boy to do that. But... Uh, the, what I was dealing with was the outer projection that people would place onto me of success. And then inwardly, I was grappling with deep, deep, unresolved issues that really prevented me from being the man
3: that I was born to be. Right. Right. Does that resonate? Yeah, Jerry does. And I think the, um, the, You know, I I was listening to what you were saying, and and in some ways, there's a lot of things that resonate. Uh, Success for me was just um, a—it was an undefined measure. It was just this word that people used, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, it was objectively measured by the number of papers you were uh, producing each year, the number of cases you could do, the accolades you had the miles you travel every year. Um, and, and, that, and, and that was a, a constantly an unreachable goal. You can always do more, you can always get further. And I got to the point where, yeah, I was uh, I was 60 pounds heavier. I was sick too, I was sleeping terribly. Um, I was drinking a lot of alcohol to forget all about it. And then quite frankly, I was not serving anybody. I thought I did, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought I did that kept it all together, Um, you know, but I was not serving anyone, my patients, my, uh, my family, my friends, myself, right? So, uh, so yeah, what you just described really resonates. And I think um, uh, is a lot of uh, unsaid story, unfortunately, in our, in our healthcare workforce.
0: Uh,
3: I just want to pause
0: and acknowledge what you've said. Because I'm feeling a kinship, and you know, your last comment that this is true in healthcare and the healthcare workforce, I think that that's true, and I think it actually extends to a lot of folks in a lot of different fields. Like I, I can hear the voices of people who are listening saying, "Yeah, I recognize that," and. I'm going to be a little bit gendered in my response and say, I think this is, this can be particularly challenging for men, especially men who take their sense of self-worth and their meaning from the work that they do.
3: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we have, uh, I've had the chance to meet, uh, you know, through the book or through just my, uh, collaborations. And just by talking about my significant issues, other people in other domains, whether it's music, uh, I have a good, my, one of my best friend is a uh, soccer player, retired soccer player. And, uh, you know, uh, professional athletes and, and mental health and professional athletes now is is just is all over the news. And there are a lot of similar themes, you know, sort of personalities, themes that sort of uh, cross path between between those uh, those sort of high achieving environments. Right. Sort of uh, uh, whether it's healthcare and not, not, just doctors, I think people that work in this sort of high intensity environments.
0: Yeah. The the uh, there's language I use in my book um, to describe some of the early belief systems that set in when we're children that can, in a sense, feed and drive the ambition. And and that, you know, you said it well, there's an almost ineffable, yet incredibly seductive notion of success. Um, And I refer to it, you know, hearkening back to uh, software engineering as subroutines, the early layers of programming that define what the machine is supposed to do. For me, part of what drove me was a fear of not having enough money that stemmed from my childhood, that stemmed, and even a projection I had about my grandfather, Dominic Guido, who uh, I often uh, talk about the fact that he had a pantry in his kitchen and in the pantry was always a tin of lemon drops. And in my mind, these lemon drop candies became symbolic of having enough And part of what drove me in my thirties was the pursuit of enough lemon drops Mm -hmm. to finally feel safe. So with that as this kind of background, I'm curious is, you know, you've clearly, you know, you hit this rock bottom, as you described it, this physical and emotional collapse where the, where the things that you worked hard to create were either gone or threatened to be gone. Right. Right. What what were the subroutines for you? What was it that was driving you so hard?
3: Well, the um, for me, there's probably two things. Um, you know that I call I talk about in the book as being a sparkle and be loved. I think that's the from early age it was to be looked at, and um, I think maybe that's my Gemini side of me, but. Mm-hmm it it became this really strong sense that i had to be at the center of everything and people needed to love me and mm-hmm. um and so at all costs right so and it whether it was in uh, training and residency whether it was with my partners at work whether it was with my friends i always had to i had to be the loudest person i had to be the one that closed the lights at bars you know, the one that was, uh, was partying the hardest, working the hardest, publishing the most, uh, was, you know, loving the most with his wife. And so, you know, I remember this, this sentence, one of my good friends said this when I finally sort of opened up to him and he said, well, you guys were like a power couple, you know, the heart surgeon that comes with his wife and they have a big house and everything seems to be like on steroids. And, uh, and the, the key word in there is everything seemed to be, and um, right. so this need of sparkle and be loved was was one. And I would say that the other character traits that was is probably the strongest within this whole uh, path of mine was this need to, sort of the, to push always the boundaries to say I'm invincible, right? So yeah. I can I can do this, I can party this, I can drink that much, and still show up and do a good surgery. And I'm not afraid to say that I can I, I can be unfaithful with my wife and I won't get caught, you know. Right, ex-wife now, but you know, sort of, <laughs> but um, sort of getting to those uh, limits, you know. So that and it's a really powerful combination when you think about it, right? Sparkle and be loved on one hand, right? You sort of want, want to be loved, people. You want people to look at you in a favorable way in some ways, but then you're pushing the limits to. To create this sort of mini secret, right? People wouldn't like you if they knew all that, right? Oh, it, it's right? a
0: very complicated, complex structure because the pursuit of being loved—you know—in my book, I call it love, safety, and belonging. That pursuit of being admired, the pursuit of being adored, in some ways also led you to be um, to hurt people, right. or or to produce the opposite feeling in them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and then to, and, and that was the chase, even sometimes I'd say even push it even further. Um, if I wasn't nice with someone or someone I met or a colleague at work, then I would go out of my way to bring him back, right? to sort of this, mm. So and so there was this constant duality and, and ultimately, you know, it was always like, uh, feeling like I was living, you know, on the edge of sort of this doom feeling that something would happen, it will happen if people know, if people heard, if people whatever, and that's a tiring feeling to live with. <laughs> you know?
0: mm. Well, it's it's tiring to live with from the outside and from the inside, right? I mean, right. Um, right. there there's something about the whole construct that just uh, no longer serves you. And, you know, what I often will, will, will share is that a lot of those systems that we put in place, and you're describing a complex set of systems that are designed to seduce and attract a kind of admiration, but at a moment, there's a moment when those systems collapse and right. they no longer work. And um, there may be a physical manifestation of that. There may be um, an emotional manifestation or a financial manifestation of that. Um, I'm curious if you know the roots of that. What, you know when we, when we pursue something, the best school, the best career, oftentimes I think the motivation is because we're moving away from the opposite of that. Right. So I pursued lemon drops because the feeling I did not want to have was the feeling I had as a kid, which right. was poverty. Right. What, what, what was fueling that drive for you?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, I thought about that because, you know, the story some wasn't complete when I started to write about it. And I'm like, well, what, what's the issue? You know, I, I thought, well, I had a pretty, pretty standard, um, raise and and um, it wasn't I never needed something it was loved a lot by my parents and and um and I think the what I came as a conclusion is I wasn't able to face I wasn't able to really sit down and ask myself who's simon I was always a projection of others does that makes sense it does. There was no like, oh, OK, I, I, you know, I wanted to make money and, and, uh, and that was my issue or oh, I have lacked something during infancy. I had this bad relationship with my father or some other explanation. It was it was fairly straightforward as a as a child. And so and so as I got to think about this more, because that's the essence, right? You want to push further and try to understand where you're at. It's it's the fear to sort of look at myself in the mirror. And I think that, and even today, right? It's not a. I mean, I don't want it to be seen as everything's better, and now I'm rosy, sort of. You know, everything's go lucky, but I still times look at the mirror and say, "Well, you know, you're sort of. Are you really happy? Is that? Were you happier before? It's sort of this sense of lost opportunities. But when I'm, when I look at the overall picture, though, uh, when I look at the overall path. it's it's been fairly positive to step back and look myself in the mirror. So there's this fear of, of truly feeling Simon, I believe, that was driving all that.
0: You know, I really appreciate the way you're describing it and that image of looking in the mirror makes me think about a corollary image of looking in the mirror and seeing nothing. You know, kind of looking in and seeing a kind of an abyss because you look in the mirror, to answer the question, "Who am I?" Mm-hmm. and and because the the persona that you're operating under, I'm a heart surgeon. I'm a hard driving. I can party all night, and still be an exceptional transplant surgeon. That image is actually uh, empty, and and I you know I think that. Um, I really want I want you to hear something. You said something earlier on about the realization as you've been out talking to people about the concepts in your book, the realization that we're not alone in this, regardless of the fields that we're in. I want you to hear something from me right now. You are not alone. Right. Right? The struggles that you are dealing with or dealt with. And I love the fact that you are kind enough to, rec- to yourself, to recognize that you're still a work in progress. <laughs> some right? days
3: are a complete mess. Yeah, absolutely. It's still, some days uh... <laughs> you're a complete mess.
0: Amen, brother. Amen. And let's just acknowledge that the, there's a liberation in saying some days I'm a mess, especially for the guy who needed to define himself by perfection.
3: Right. Absolutely. And perfectionism is... Uh, and I mean, I, I live this sort of hate love relationship with perfectionism because, um, w- perfectionism has allowed me to get where I'm at this, you know, to, professionally and, but the negative, uh, aspects of perfectionism, the attention seeking, the self-criticism, the has, has really, um, have, has really impeded my, my overall health and overall life in general. And, um, and so, realizing that perfectionism was the reason for which I started to drink to forget, realizing that I couldn't cope with the failure with the stress of the environment, the work the too much work uh, was a hard realization to me and it was it was ingrained and, and if I would have to make a link to my childhood, my mom was probably the the model of perfectionism that i was i would I would look to and then when we I, you know, I still see somebody to, 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 to help me as a, as a coach on a, on a weekly basis. We talk about perfectionism a lot and how this image of, of my mom who's the executive flying with a pager and every week, you know, um, has influenced me to sort of feel like I can always take on more and, uh, and, um, and my mom went through a phase where she got a huge depression and that sort of did a, but at the time it was more of an event as a single event than a sort of a cumulative issue. You know, I was too young to realize that. And, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think that's what I'm trying to, in some ways, put into words as, as burnout and and depression and addiction to substances or or alcohol for me was an end result of something wasn't like an acute moment we need to deal with. And then it's gone. It's, it's more of a profound continuum in some ways. How old are you? 42. So
0: this is, you could argue that, that this was within the container of that moment when first adulthood is ending and second adulthood is looming.
3: Yeah. And, uh, and in healthcare, I think you know. I, I think for a physician, anyway, I can't speak from nursing and things. Mm-hmm. The adulthoods is delayed a little bit, right? It's forced on you early on because you're in school. You have responsibilities. You're seeing patients. You're seeing death a lot. You're mm-hmm. you're exposed to things probably a twenty some year old is not supposed to see. So your character traits are being uh, pushed into you, mm-hmm. uh, forced into you, without the maturity of having to. Be able to construct around them, and when you get to thirty, now you start your adult life as a or thirty two in my in my case, your adult life in the workforce, you know, starting your career because you've studied all these years. But all these years, your studies have delayed a bit your maturation, I think, but forced onto you some of these character traits that are that are potentially uh, harmful um, in the future. But I, I would say that. Uh, I mean, this to answer your questions a bit more directly over the last couple of years, I started to reflect a bit more on me and and on my, on my life. So I would, I would say I spend most of my adulthood in this sort of constant rat race or um, sort of this disconnect between my professional career and what I want to accomplish personally, you know, with, with a real sort of intent. That makes sense.
0: It does. It does. And, you know, you you broaden the conversation to talk a little bit about the experience of being a doctor, being in the healthcare industry. I'd like to expand a little bit and talk a little bit more about that. Um, your insight that you just gave me was really helpful for me to understand. I can see that conflict that can arise. On the one hand, you're forced to grow up. On the other hand, you're not yet matured. And, this, and if you layer in a compulsion, which I think you're far from alone in, the pursuit of high achievement, the pursuit of perfection. Uh, because unlike a, a lot of professions, which convey a sense of life and death scenario, yeah. if I don't get an investment memo out, nobody is actually going to die. Whereas if you show up in the surgical ring, not at your best self, somebody could die. Yep. Yep. And that, that, you know, we often talk about life and death and we use metaphor. The truth is that this is real.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the, um, this it's hard to speak about, but, um, the, and I wouldn't say this to in a bad way, but everything becomes dull around you. That's what my experience was, um, as a heart surgeon early on, you're faced with, uh, yeah, if you make mistakes, people die. You'll take on cases that, that, you know, are going to die, um, to because the family wants to do it because so you are faced with not in a uh, conceptual way, death, you know? So in a really sort of truly, uh, I mean, you're, there's days where you lose two people and you have to come home to your family and friends and sort of act like nothing or, or deal with, well, today I couldn't really pick up the mail because, uh, um, uh, you know, because I don't you know I had to do the grocery. So, I mean, when you come home, everything becomes like a, in slow motion. I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways, right? So that, and then my ex-wife used to say that, it's like, you're not listening to me, you know? It's like you're, uh, everything I say to you is boring. And I'm like, it's not boring. It's just uh, the, it's like when you uh, you have a cold and then your friend's dealing with brain cancer, um, you know, it put things in perspective. And so when you come home and, and your wife's like, couldn't buy this thing on Amazon today, or I can, uh, mm-hmm. can get that dress I wanted. Um, and not because she didn't have anything to say that was interesting, but everything sort of takes a perspective and, and that's, and that's not normal.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll venture to guess I could be wrong, but I think what you were doing was trying to protect your own heart.
3: In some ways, yeah, you become the, you learn how to sort of just walk by, um, how to just go straight from the, from the, um, from the hospital to the bar right corner, have a couple of beers, um, and, and allowing you to do that to say, well, that's okay. I had, I lost somebody today, so I'm going to have a few shots, a few beers before I go home. Right. That's normal.
0: Well, it's, it's, you know, I think that a psychologist would call it disassociation. Right, And that kind of splitting off is a defense mechanism. And, uh, you know, I want to be clear. Uh, I hear a profound sense of responsibility in you for taking responsibility for your own behavior. But I also want to give you the ability to sort of look at this behavior in the part of anybody who's listening and say, what, what is in fact going on? It's a survival strategy, which to me speaks to the need for mental health support throughout the healthcare industry.
3: Absolutely. And, um, and that's one of the things I, I talk a bit in the book to say, we tend to see the event of, you know, um, whether it's burnout, depression, mental illness, as a, as a moment in time. And there's structures and things that light up when you're at the hospital. You know, you'll get sent to some program, or you'll have to go to HR because you know. Even sometimes when you say you know, dealing with emotions becomes so hard that it comes out a certain way. Uh, being angry at work was was pretty much. I was known for being an angry heart surgeon, which is not an uncommon thing in our profession, fortunately. Mm. But being angry all the time is not normal right? It's, it's a, it's the, it's like crying, right? It's like uh mm-hmm. it's like a, it's, it's, it's an emotion that comes out because you can't deal with it personally, whether it's the failure, the view of others, the, whatever it is. So being angry was a mechanism for me to say, well, it's okay to just, you know, pound opinions to a nurse that's taking care of my patient. That's her fault. The patient's dead. Right. Um, and, um, and it's okay. To, so you allow yourself to have some of these, uh, some of these reactions, but, but it's, but it's not okay. And so the system has things in place to deal with angry surgeons, to deal with uh, burnout or depression and, and anxiety. They'll send you to some program. They'll have you do things, things to check boxes But things. They put you right back in um, and then, and then see, they really adjust the system. They really have ways to sort of um, monitor the progress of of, 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 things throughout, even like med school, you know, there's things that, I mean, I, I've, I've had every year, it's like a thing, but every, every um, cohorts, I'd say, it's say, four years of, of classes in medicine, usually see one or two people that commit suicide. So and, slow down, slow down,
0: wait a minute. Every year, one and not two
3: years. Not every year, but every cohort. Let's right, cohort. Cohort. Like, say for me, it was like a five-year medical school years, like they were like one to five. Right. It's rare that you go through a four or five year time without seeing someone, um, someone committing suicide or attempting. That's heartbreaking. It is. And the rate of depression is is that's all published data, is 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 the highest in med school and residency, which reaches almost half people would 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 quit if they could. Um, I at least, at least know of two people in, in the medical school when I was training that committed suicide. Oh, and and that's, again, that's, uh, so it's present, right. From early on. Um, and, uh, and now you hear those stories, you know, on, 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 uh, on the news, right. Nurses and, and doctors, you know, most recent, two doctors committing suicide. So there's, it's there. And so, yeah, the system has to be better as to not to respond to something, but detect things earlier and be proactive and to sort of incorporating mental health and, and support throughout the journey.
0: I'm, I'm reminded of something my friend Parker Palmer says, he says, violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. And whether it's the angry surgeon, or the depressed and suicidal resident, they're both expressions of violence, and right. the mm-hmm. resilience that's necessary in the healthcare system seems to be the capacity to deal with suffering.
3: Right, and I said because then, then you know, it's suffering at all level, personal suffering, but suffering from others, it's hard to explain what, how to deal with this or how to. So you, you want to establish systems where you don't have people reach that point, right? So they realize that you know they have ways to speak up and things and uh, and it's even stronger than that. And I, you know, and I talk about this in the book too, but so angry heart surgeon is 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 a pretty common thing in in heart surgery. And then it's because of the personalities or the the extent of life and death that we deal with, or the stressful environment, but it it takes a certain type of people to do this job, and it brings also a certain types of people that are a bit abrupt, a bit a bit sort of particular. Now that being said, um, it's not some. I wasn't always angry, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I so. But when you look at um, uh, your mentors, right, or the people in the past that have made it. There was, it was sort of a rite of passage to be angry, to be yelled at, to be sort of, um, you know, to do 100 hours a week and then beaten up at the end, saying things like, I, I had somebody told me you're the worst resident this program has ever seen, ever, you know. So there's like a, right. it's so, and then so when you finish, you feel like you have to be that way, sort of this sort of unconscious bias to say, well, I'm done. It's my turn to sort of give this sort of, just a sure, sure.
0: it's 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 like there's a lineage of anger,
3: or to right. put it another way, there's a
0: lineage of the way to deal with the suffering, the way to drive for the perfection in the profession is to berate those who are behind you. right. and
3: even and and it's not only entirely their fault, it's how the system was at the time is they you know they had to be like that. Um, or they thought they had be like that. But then when you look at even today on TV, right? The images of the heart surgeon and the neurosurgeon or the famous mm-hmm. doctor on these shows. I mean, Dr. House um, is not a particularly uh, fun guy, very smart dude, <laughs> right. you know? And then you look at, uh, you know, Dr. Austin and these shows like The Residence, the guy is, is an animal. I mean, he's, he's, he's been thrown in from jobs to job, from HR, phenomenal surgeon, but so- you know, you go to work as a, as a young doctor to learn how to be a heart surgeon, and then you learn from um, being berated a little bit. And then you look on TV, how should I be? Why should I be like this surgeon? You know, right, right. So how do you expect people to come out on the other side and, and be any different, you
0: know? But, you uh, know, I, there's an analogy in the tech industry, which is where most of my clients are, which is we look at, say, the success of uh, Steve Jobs, and uh, many people loved Steve and many people were berated by Steve, mm-hmm. right? And so that sets up this anti-hero structure yeah. uh, and, and it becomes a model. I, I want to, I, I feel we would be remiss if we did not speak to the current times. And, you know, depending on... Where you are in, um, geographically, we're in the middle or at the beginning or towards the end of a pandemic, and that has had a profound effect on the healthcare system throughout the world, but I'm cognizant of that here in North America. I'm curious about your thoughts about what's happening uh, now and and... and Um, maybe we'll we'll start to think about, move towards a question I have, which is how can those of us who are not in the healthcare industry provide support beyond banging pots at seven o'clock at night to those in the healthcare industry?
3: Um, I think COVID is... is has put everything on steroids. It has, uh, and that, and I mean, all the issues that were there before, whether it's resources, whether it's mental illness, whether it's um, access to resources, uh, limitation of treatments, um, sort of um, issues with patient pathways. Everything has been sort of been um, exposed, so to speak. I mean the resources were a problem the waiting time were a problem the access to to healthcare was a problem but the particulars about covid and I think I think when we look back at history about this time is is the how lengthy it is I mean and then, so you add another layer of exhaustion you add another layer of um of just being tired or wanting to is the resilience of human beings I think has a limited capacity. I mean, it's for for a lot of people, so you could say, okay, I'm resilient, I adapt to something and things. But uh, when, when you have to adapt uh, over a two year time period plus, I mean, you can't be on par all the time, and so it has these fluctuations of people either being getting sick or even leaving all behind. I mean, the the aftermath to me of COVID, uh, where the so called heroes. Um, we'll we'll have to deal with the ramifications of and the impact of the disease on the system is is going to be for the next decade and uh, and and we'll see hospitals uh, you know close we'll see hospitals fire people and we've seen that already we'll see the, we already see there was a study that was just published in heart surgery where the volume has gone down by 50%. I mean, these people are still there, but the mortality that is observed uh, is 60% higher for the same type of procedures that are supposed to have a certain degree of mortality. So patients are dying more, uh, that means, I mean, cost, that means, um, and we don't talk about that enough, but um, just this past uh, four weeks ago, I lost two patients same day and, um, and in this article, they talk about the mortality and how the surgery is getting harder and things. But they never talk about the impact of coming to your office and have two deaths and have to go back home or get back on the horse the next day and do the same thing over again. And so I think these, the, the, the time for which COVID has been present has, will have a significant impact.
0: You know, I think um, I'm wired to be an optimist. Even right. when I'm a mess
3: <laughs> right and
0: and uh, even in my own struggles with depression, I eventually tend towards optimism. Right. And my hope I've said this before about the pandemic generally, my hope has been that the the cracks in the system that were revealed, whether it's racial injustice, economic inequity, Healthcare inequity, the cracks in the system that got revealed by this will be answered by some of the things that we came to understand, which is that my personal health choices impact you and your personal health choices impact me. And the fact is, you know, you may or may not know this about me, but I'm a Buddhist. And one of the most important precepts in Buddhism is interdependence. I need you to take care of you and you need me to take care of me right. because we depend upon each other. And, and your story about the healthcare industry, my hope is that we have a reckoning with the system where that, that goes way back to college where we start training people who, you know, that college freshman who says, you know, I think I'm going to major in biology because someday I want to be a doctor Right. Right. All the way to the end of the system where we're teaching end of life care. We're teaching compassion. I mean, I got to be honest with you, Simon. I know that you're a little bit rough on yourself these days because when you look backwards, you see. But I'll tell you this much. The Simon that exists today, I'd rather you be my heart surgeon. Right. And the guy who was perfect four years ago.
3: Oh, absolutely! You don't want that guy. <laughs> I mean, you want him. He was real good. He thought he was better than he thought <laughs> he thought he was. <laughs> I want this guy. Right. Right.
0: Because this this guy's got humility. This guy's got compassion. This guy gives a shit that two of his patients died in a single day.
3: Right. Objectively, I. I it was actually objective evidence that I'm actually a better doctor now than I used to be. You know.
0: Well, uh, uh, I'll I'll give you a little Buddhist teaching, and I'll speak a little bit like your older brother because I am older than you. <laughs> one of the most profound and important teachings, and uh, Roshi Joan Halifax is one of my teachers. She she uh, is the uh, founder of a center called Upaya in New Mexico, and she does a lot of work teaching resilience to healthcare workers. I highly recommend her books. She has helped me see this, is that training in the cultivation of compassion creates resilience in people. This is a bit of a mindfuck, meaning the more I open myself to other people's suffering, mm-hmm. the stronger I am.
3: Absolutely. And it's uh, but it's hard to measure, you know, but it's 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 something you feel. And uh, I see I see people now coming to me to uh, um, sit down in my office and have a little therapy. Tell me what I mean. Tell me what I should do to make this a bit better. I had someone recently that came and um, every time I come to work, uh, I don't want to come. I'm getting scared of being yelled at by some of my colleagues and things help me uh, achieve what you've achieved. And so that to me now is even a more, I'd say uh, rewarding because you don't do this for a reward, but more satisfying um, than doing four heart transplants in a row without a complications, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. Simon, I, mean, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for reaching out and sharing your story with honesty and authenticity. It really means a lot. And I know that folks are going to resonate with the story. Um, the book is called Healthcare Anonymous. And um, I think that uh, uh, it, folks will find it compelling, not just uh, those who are in the healthcare field, but those outside as well. Thank you for coming on the show, my friend.
3: Thank you, Jerry. It was a it was a bit of a therapy to come to your show. It was great.
0: <laughs> Everybody says that. Don't worry, you'll get my bill in the morning. <laughs>
3: exactly. No, the, so you, the, we we create a website, you know, healthcareanonymous.com, uh, where people can have more information about the book. We do have we the hope is I mean, the book is one thing. I don't I didn't do that to sell books. I, I did this to create a community of people to start speaking up. And I think people talking about about issues with mental illness and healthcare and other of these sort of high intensity environments will hopefully help others. And so if my story can help anyone, that would be, that would be one, one thing achieved, right? It's the height of service, isn't it?
1: If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
2: Looking to accelerate growth for the leaders and managers in your organization? Create a container of safety, inquiry, and accountability from which important insights, innovations, and solutions can emerge with Reboot Circles for Management Teams. Led by a Reboot Coach, these peer circles are designed to support leaders' growth and development through action based learning using real life challenges. Group sessions involve a mix of coaching exercises, guided journaling, facilitated group exploration, and time to process pressing issues and concerns. The facilitator holds the space, prompts the dialogue, and models the behavior of effective coaching. Circles for Management teams enable rapid learning, teach fundamental coaching skills, and help build internal resiliency among teams so that your company can scale more efficiently. Learn more about how Reroot Circles for Management teams can support the professional development of leaders and managers in your organization at reboot.io slash circles for teams.